Monday, December 8th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in the studio today from Motley Fool 1, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday, gents. Hello. Me too. Starting to feel like Christmas weather. I'll it say is. that. Getting a little it chilly is. out Me there. Too, man. I even put a Christmas wreath on the front door yesterday. Did you? I did. You know, we're not decorating the house here. We're going to go spend Christmas down on the river uh, you know, when my wife gets back. And so we're, I'm not decorating that house. Like, I'm not a decorator. I like seeing the, the finished product. But I was at Trader <laughs> Joe's, you know, and I was like, man, he's getting stuff for the kids' lunches. And I saw all these nice wreaths. And I was like, I, I can do a wreath. I mean, the, the hook is already on the door. So really all I had to do was just put it there. I was just going to say. You that. didn't even have to step outside. You just no, reached the arm out. I just opened the door. Exactly. I mean, let's, let's not let's – not, Go so far as to describe putting a wreath on a door as let's not categorize that as decorating. Well, that's my. That's about as about as much as I could do. That's good. I'm glad you were able to take that baby. One so. year at a time. Will hear this and she'll be thrilled. <laughs> Honey, I love you. The house looks great. Uh, we're going to talk big pharma. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. Let's start with McDonald's. Same store sales falling globally more than two percent, but here in the U.S. And I don't think, Jason, that anyone was necessarily expecting them to be great, but falling more than 4.5% here in the U.S., this is the sharpest drop in monthly same-store sales since the year 2000. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's not good. Like last last month, I mean, the October sales they came in better than expected, which was you know kind of interesting to see. But but that certainly uh, has, has all but been erased with November sales. I mean, if you look at, uh, I mean, the U.S. is where where McDonald's is really uh, suffering, and that's no surprise. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, just to put some numbers around it, in October, U.S. sales were down one percent. In November, they were down four point six percent. Um, and so, just for you folks out there, when you hear comparable sales uh, from McDonald's, what comparable sales represent all sales at all restaurants, uh, whether operated by the company or franchisees, and, and those restaurants have been open for at least 13 months. So they're pretty mature, established, they're predictable, and um, and so again, I mean, we're seeing this this huge shift in in the way people are eating. Here in the United States, um, whether it is playing out in the grocery segment, which it is, we're seeing companies like Whole Foods benefiting, or whether you look at the restaurant segment, I mean, we're seeing uh, you know companies like Chipotle, companies like Panera uh, playing into that, um, playing into that dynamic and offering you know better quality ingredients, not necessarily cheaper, uh, but but consumers are willing to pay a little bit more for something that's uh, better quality and, and something that they perceive at least to be better for them and uh you know the the really the toughest thing that McDonald's faces now is that they are they're trying to expand their menu to make it more to offer more and and the trouble that you see with that is that becomes really difficult to manage and and, and it's playing out in their operating costs and uh you know when these sales fall you know there are a lot of fixed costs involved with keeping these restaurants open and so when these sales fall that really Really dings them on the margin line, and, and, and profitability gets killed. And uh, and you know we're, we're they they call that out as as being something that's going to play out on this quarter's earnings. And so I suspect uh, you know when when they do announce earnings for the fourth quarter, uh, they're not going to be all that good. Taylor, they're also dealing with supply issues in China and the U.S. dollar being as strong as it is. That also hurts them in mm-hmm. China. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to see. How they turn this around? I know earlier in this year they were testing in Southern California a build-your-own burger concept. 
I, I, yeah, we I, had a listener tweet us a photo of it, didn't right. they, or send a photo of it? Yeah, and uh, not necessarily a bad idea, but one of the issues that they're dealing with now with that concept is the throughput, because it takes, shockingly, <laughs> uh, in air quotes, it, it takes <laughs> longer to make that burger. It takes like seven minutes mm-hmm. uh, on average, and that's just, you know, that's its own challenge. Yeah, you look at maybe that's trying to address the Chipotle uh, competition, uh, creating your own thing. But with Chipotle, you can throw things into a bowl a lot quicker than you can, <laughs> you know, make a burger. You know, layering things on there properly, wrapping it all up. Um, so we talk about Jason saying they're offering more. Their competition's offering less. You can get four proteins at Chipotle: rice or lettuce, and then bam, 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 down the line, so that you can see every single ingredient that you can buy at Chipotle. Whereas with McDonald's, if they keep offering chicken, hamburgers, frappuccinos, ice cream, all this stuff, they're going to continue to have problems, I think. There was a stretch a few years ago where this stock was was doing pretty well, and you mentioned the frappuccinos. That was part of it. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Coffee the, has the, been a their nice move, boost. Their move even further into breakfast, and particularly coffee, mm-hmm. really helped fuel their results and therefore the stock. But I want to hit two more things before we move to our next topic. One is, Jason, you mentioned the quality of the ingredients. And I think think that's something that uh, gets lost a little bit uh, in the public debate about this, because I don't think I think there are some people out there who who equate quality, higher quality ingredients with healthy, mm-hmm. and quality and healthy are two entirely different things. You can get high quality, you can get a high quality burrito at Chipotle. It's going to have a lot of sodium <laughs> in it. It's going to have a lot of calories. Sure, but it's going to be higher quality. It is, but I would also say that you know, I mean, Chipotle I think is a great example of this. The yeah, if you you can get a high quality burrito with a lot of that stuff in it, but you can also go through that line and and you know, take out those higher calorie or ha- higher sodium uh, ingredients and, and and you know, Chipotle makes that really easy because you can go to any any restaurant's website now and find out what uh, you know, those what those ingredients uh, have. And so for Chipotle for example, you know, uh, that the burrito, that the that the actual tortilla is is very high in sodium, and you can cut the sodium tremendously just by getting a burrito bowl, and so you at least have that option. Whereas as with McDonald's, and I guess they were pursuing this at least with the build a burger thing, is is to be able to sort of you know cater it to your liking and, and eliminate the the higher calorie or higher fat ingredients. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not sure how well that's going to work out for them, but I mean. You know, on the flip side, there you have companies like Starbucks, which is has been known really primarily for coffee and tea uh, for the past forty years, and and they now have this aspiration. I mean, they they're targeting, you know, more than doubling their U.S. food sales up to to four billion dollars, hopefully by by two thousand and nineteen. So so they have this this you know target out there, and they're really gunning for that. And and if it's you know one thing that that you know Starbucks and Howard Schultz have proven out is. You know they're determined and very you know smart, and they've done a great job you know growing that business out and, and pursuing um, you know alternatives beyond just just coffee and tea. And, and I know Bill Barker's mentioned this a couple times. It, it is amazing to think how far Starbucks has gotten without really ever nailing the food part. And even yeah. when they try, it's still not all that great. I mean, it's just not. It's better. It's yeah. a better. The launch acquisition t- took time. Yeah, that was but a they big did business right. for them. To and if they if they if they latch onto something good, I mean that that could be a tremendous 
uh, force that McDonald's has to deal with because there are so many Starbucks out there already. In the wake of this news from McDonald's this morning and their uh, their warning on their next quarterly results, an analyst at Goldman Sachs came out with a note about those results and then reiterating how Goldman Sachs feels about other players in this space and called out three stocks in particular that Goldman Sachs really likes. Two of them, not really a surprise. One is Starbucks. Mm -hmm. The other is Chipotle. The third one surprised me, Burger King. And I'm wondering to what extent it is simply a matter of, hey, it's a new CEO. He's young. He's dynamic. He's trying a bunch of stuff. And married with the fact that you know, like the old blues song, I've been down so long, being down don't bother me. Like Burger King has been so hammered for so long that if they can just improve slightly, all right. I got one word for you, Chris. Yumbo. Yumbo, exactly. <laughs> it's I don't, the Yumbo effect. I don't, I don't think the Yumbo was mentioned in the note. Let's move on to Big Pharma. Cubist Pharmaceuticals up 35% today for the reason... Any smaller pharmaceutical company is up that much in a single day, and that is because Cubis is being bought by a much bigger company. In this case, it's Merck. Uh, Merck is buying them for $9.5 billion. Cubis focuses on antibiotic drugs. I, I'm more familiar with companies like Cisco Systems dramatically overpaying <laughs> in their acquisition, so I don't know if Merck is dramatically overpaying. Good day for Cubist. Merck's stock is flat, maybe down just slightly. Um, I don't know, Taylor, we were talking about this earlier today. Merck is one of those stocks. There was a good stretch there in the 90s where if you had Merck, you were doing great. Mm -hmm. They were one of the best performers in the pharmaceutical space. Fast forward to now, I mean, the, the, the stock has sort of floundered along, although. It's having a great 2014. Great 2014. And you you pointed out the last couple of years has actually yeah, yeah. done pretty well. It took him a little while to get out of the gate from the financial crisis 2008, but yeah, since 2012ish, they've really I mean up 75% since then. So they've done quite nicely, but they've been making changes especially this year. Um, they sold off their consumer healthcare division for 14 billion dollars to Bayer along with some other assets that they didn't believe were part of the part of the grand scheme of things anymore. Um, they're starting to put that money to work. Already bought Idenix Pharmaceuticals, um, Hepatitis C. Gilead's proven that if you don't have a Hepatitis C drug in your portfolio, investors might not pay attention to you. Um, so they thought, hey, we'll go spend four billion on this and and join the f- the fray of Hepatitis C drugs. Um, and so now this one for almost ten billion dollars, uh, still just a fraction of their overall market cap, but. Um, Antibiotics are, are widely used around the world, uh, rightfully or wrongly so. Um, so it, it could be a nice addition because a lot of their, their headliners have been struggling as far as uh, drugs are concerned. So they've laid off a lot of workers, uh, unfortunately, but it's, it's helped their, their cost structure and um, they feel comfortable going out and adding to the business now rather than subtracting from it. When you see a company like this, this is a hundred, a one hundred seventy-five billion dollar company. So it's no slouch. It is no <laughs> slouch. Um, when you see a stock like that doing well, in this case, in twenty fourteen, it's basically doubled what the market has done. The market's up around eleven percent year to date. Mm-hmm. Shares of Merck up around twenty three percent coming into today. Does something like that? get your attention in either a good way or a bad way? Because I, I was saying to you guys earlier this morning, I imagine, because Merck is a well-known company, uh, 
you want to back it out over the last 20 years, more often than not, it's a stock that's done well. But I don't know if it's if it's the sort of thing that the average investor is going to find interesting, even though it's easy for me to imagine financial advisors of any stripe calling up their clients and saying, hey, look, you know, in 2015, we got to get you into Merck. We got to get you some shares of this because the last couple of years it's done great. It doesn't have to be about pharmaceuticals. I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of size, mm-hmm. because for me as an investor, it's easier to get my head around a carryover effect for a smaller stock. But that's just me. Taylor, when you look at energy stocks or any industry for that matter, when you think about a stock doing well, having any kind of carryover effect, does size matter? I think so, especially when you're talking about mutual fund advisors and, and things like that. They have a benchmark that they're usually following. And with a company that big, um, if they don't hold it, they're missing out because a lot of these benchmarks are market cap weighted. So they could you know, start to follow the herd a little bit. So it, that would worry me a little bit, unless there's a lot of news around the company actually improving. And it seems like there is around Merck this year, a little bit last year as well. So um, if with some acquisitions, I might be a little hesitant to see how those play out um, going into the new year. But prior to this, if you had tried to sell me on Merck, looking back, I could have been interested. Um, as far as you mentioned energy companies, uh, you look at, I try to look at companies of comparable size that hey, weren't doing as well, decided to shed some assets, and ConocoPhillips leapt out at me. Um, only a $40 billion company now, only, uh, but that's because it sold Phillips 66 uh, in 2012, and since then uh, has, you know, Followed the path of Merck uh, up around the same amount since the since the spinoff, and um, you know they, that was a core asset, but it was kind of uh, a mirror image of their upstream business because in the upstream is doing well, oil prices are high, the spreads on the downstream aren't doing that well, so both of those businesses kind of profited at different times. So that kind of held the company back because it you know it was a safer bet, but it had limited upside because of that. So since then. Um, that's some. That's a company that I've been focused on because they've been operating really well up until June of this year. They had been thriving, uh, but that's just because the whole entire energy sector has been struggling over the past three to four months. Yeah, in in some ways, uh, I was reminded this morning when I was looking at this Merck story. I, I was reminded of the conversation Matt Argusinger and I had last week about Apple and how, in the supernova service, the decision was made to sell shares of Apple, and it was based in no small part, uh, on the market cap of Apple. It was mm-hmm. essentially, look, this is a $700 billion company. Will it double? Yes, at some point. But we have other stocks, other companies that we look at, and we think they can double in size more quickly than Apple mm-hmm. can. And so that's why I sort of look at Merck, and I think, I, I don't know, I, I not that I want to warn investors. Again, to your point, this has been a well-run company that's had a good couple of years here. It's not to say that Merck can't get to $350 billion. I guess I, if, if my financial advisor were calling me up, I think I'd have a, just a few extra questions about Merck before I jumped in. Where the market has been going, though, you look at um, a safe dividend with this company. So, um, that's true. You know, if, if you do think the market's near a top, uh, you're going to look at dividends more closely to kind of add to that 
that bottom line growth that you might not see in stock price appreciation. I mean, it's a it's a huge company, and so you have to pay attention to that. I think it's interesting to look at how the stock has performed over the past couple of years versus how their financials have performed. If you look at the income statement, the top line is relatively flat, mm-hmm. if not down a little bit. Earnings are down a little bit. Um, and so, I mean, what you, what you have here is a huge company. It's a Dow component, tremendous institutional ownership. So it obviously, you know, there's a lot of of buying and selling going on in mass there. And I think that, you know, it, it wouldn't shock me at all with it. I think the closing closing in on a three percent dividend yield. It wouldn't. I, it, you know, I think that some of the buying that has, has helped the stock price over the past year or so uh, has probably come from those seeking that income. Um, you know, we, we've seen a lot of of these you know big dividend payers. Their stock prices have gotten maybe a little bit ahead of themselves because people are looking for uh, you know that that sort of return that you're not finding with uh, you know rates being so low. Uh, so for me, that's I see I see enough red flags there to think well the, the financials don't impress me enough. Uh, to say, you know, yeah, I think I'd want to buy this stock, but I bet you probably will have a lot of backward-looking fund manager out there. There's, hey, listen, the stock has done really well the past couple of years. You got to get in there for 2015. Yeah, beware of that because when you look at how the stock price is done, look at the financials. The financials don't look like the stock performance necessarily, uh, you know, merits what it's done. Well, and that's you just touched on a, a, a great basic question to ask anyone who's recommending a stock to you is. What was driving those earnings? Right. Were they bringing in more money, or were they just cutting workers? And and, and yeah, that's a temporary thing. And to Taylor's point there with acquisitions, I mean, anytime a company is going to grow via acquisition, you have to keep that in mind because that's the difference between organic growth, where the company is just growing based on demand of, of its you know products and services, versus you know having to buy that growth. When you buy that growth, it's it's far more difficult to integrate those acquisitions. The bigger the acquisition is, the more difficult it is to integrate. And uh, you know, my my suspicion is that with uh, Merck being the size it is today. There's going to be more growth via acquisition than I would care to invest in. You can follow us on Twitter at MarketFoolery is our handle. Question from Greg Leff in Arizona: Any thoughts on this article and its impact on the energy sector? And he included a link to an article from Nature, the weekly science magazine, uh, Nature.com. An article entitled, and I'll Taylor, I'll just read the headline and the subhead. The headline of the article is Natural Gas, the Fracking Fallacy. And the subhead is The United States is banking on decades of abundant natural gas to power its economic resurgence. That may be wishful thinking. You're the energy guy in the room. You had a chance to look over this article. I did. It basically dealt with forecasting mm-hmm. and, and pointing out, among other things, look, you, you go back to the 90s and the forecasting. Was very conservative on natural gas. That's obviously changed over the past decade mm-hmm. or so. But this author and the people uh, being quoted were suggesting that uh, it may be time to start coming up with some more conservative forecasts. Well, yeah, if you follow fantasy football, you know forecasts aren't always going to be that accurate, save the outliers. Um, <laughs> if my forecasts were accurate, I would be in the playoffs right now. But I'm not. So, um, thinking back, uh, even just five, six years ago, most forecasts, as you mentioned, were bearish for natural gas. Then along came some technical technological innovation, fracking, uh, really took off in the United States, uh, much to the chagrin of environmentalists, but I think that those fears are slowly being kind of assuaged a little bit with more water recycling being used. Um, People are paying more attention to fault lines, kind of steering clear of those a little bit more. And 
studies around earthquakes from fracking have kind of shown that it really wasn't the case. Um, but back to the study in question here, it's from the University of Texas, uh, kind of calling into calling uh, the EIA out a little bit, saying that um, after 2020, we're probably going to see some declining production in natural gas, whereas the EIA said growth What's out the, EIA? the Energy Information Administration uh, run by the government um, and great source of data for anybody interested in anything re revolving around energy, fossil fuels, or renewables. Um, I use it uh, or used to use it on a daily basis, pulling back on that a little bit now, but um, for no particular reason other than just other things going on. But um, they said out to 2040 is going to be a great time for natural gas, but this University of Texas study got a little bit more granular um, on a almost on a well-by-well well basis, whereas uh, the EIA was looking at counties. And so you're looking at up to thousands of wells in a particular county that aren't all producing at the same rate. Um, you look at companies going after that low-hanging fruit first, wells that are more guaranteed to produce at higher outputs. Um, so that's not going to be the case continuing out is what this study is trying to say. But, um, you know, it says, one quote from it, the idea that natural gas will be abundant is a sharp turnaround from the pessimistic outlooks that prevailed until about five years ago. So things change, and I think that we're headed in the right direction with fracking. Um, you're looking at CO2 recovery and water flooding, accelerating the recovery rates out of these wells, and that's basically just backfilling these wells with either CO2 or water to push out oil and natural gas at a higher rate. Um, ceramic propens, these companies like CarboCeramics, really crushed over lately uh, because they're tied to fracking, but more specialized. Uh, they can be tailored to specific wells, and um, the technology behind detailing these wells with a company like Core Laboratories, you can you can isolate different performance metrics before you even go down there to drill. So I think if te technology continues along the same path, EIA could be right. I don't think they base their projections on advancements in technology because that's even harder to predict than I think well, well output. Um, but you look at companies like Spectra Energy, going to spend $35 billion out to 2018 on, on some projects all around natural gas or liquefied natural gas. So there's companies out there banking heavily on natural gas production in the United States. And, and I think with the mind share that we have, people are much more willing to share ideas in this sector now. Um, that if that ha if that continues to occur, I like our chances. And Jason, we talk all the time about companies that, you know, well, McDonald's for one, where they're doing more business outside the United States than they are inside the United States. And you look at natural gas production. This is another. This is the reverse. This is where the United States is sort of ground zero for this type of industry because if and this is one of the things touched on in the article if forecasting is tough in general mm -hmm. it's easier here in the United States because we have so many more wells you go over to Europe there are a lot of countries where forecasting is a lot tougher simply because the numbers are much smaller yeah and i mean i think domestically speaking at least when you're looking at forecasting it can be very very risky to sit there and just Place your bets on on what one forecast may say, but uh, you you kind of get like I think Taylor was making the point there. You got to follow where the money is. You know where's that money going? And I think there is a lot of of smart money out there investing in a natural gas infrastructure. At least you know domestically speaking. I mean, you look at companies like Cummins and Westport and Clean Energy Fuels, mm -hmm. and while they're getting pummeled today because I mean the, the pessimism is so high, 
Um, you know, these are companies that are still continuing to invest in their businesses and, and, and pursue their strategies. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I like to follow the money. I mean, follow the money, follow the smart people in that industry. I think T. Boone Pickens is, is, a, is a wonderful follow on Twitter. If for nothing else, he's always got something to say. Uh, but but he's, a, he's a really smart guy in the industry as well. And, uh, and, and he so puts his money where his mouth he, is. He does. He's I mean, not he's just not shouting just, off. Right. He's not trying to just light his money on fire. I mean, uh, so as long as these companies continue to invest in their operations and, and their strategic initiatives, uh, you know, while, while the short the short term noise can can certainly you know depress these stock prices, uh, I, you know, for long term investors, it really is just one of those things that you just kind of have to deal with and, and see the see the longer view. One more thing about T Boone is he tends to stick to his circle of competence. Mm-hmm. He's not <laughs> like some other people that we talk about from time to time, not to pick on Carl Icahn. He just <laughs> happens to be the first person who leapt to mind. But, you know, sort of the uh, the tendency of uh, of some to sort of lump all of these people. It's like, well, these these billionaires with their opinions. It's like, well, yeah, but T-Bone kind of knows what he what sticks he's to energy. He's not <laughs> telling you why you need to invest in Facebook yeah. or Twitter or Google or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's he sticks to what he knows, but he is open-minded too because he's op- he's started talking more about wind energy and things like that. Mm-hmm. So he's not he's not the old wildcatter that he used to only oil and natural gas. He's uh he's, he's really changing with the times, but within the energy industry. Thanks for being here, guys. Yep. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and I'm not a full man. Formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. It's going to do it for Monday's edition of Market Fuller. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.